0: The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, we thank you for allowing us to draw near to you. Think of this song that we were led through just recently of, of the fire of Sinai being quenched. God, that is an amazing truth that you would allow us to draw near to you. A mighty God you'd want relationship with us. In spite of ourselves, you draw us near. So God, we come before you now. We ask that you would reveal more of who you are through your word as we gather together to worship you. Amen. Please take a seat, everyone. Welcome to Pillar Bible Fellowship. We do have some guests here, and it's so great to have you. Please make yourselves at home. If you need to get up, move about, take care of anything, this is uh, our invitation to you to make yourselves comfortable. Here at Pillar Bible Fellowship, we take books of the Bible and we preach through them. And so we have just recently started in Genesis, and we are just now four weeks into this book, into this study. And it's going to take us probably the better part of a year to get through all of Genesis. But this is a very foundational book for our understanding of who God is, and he has given it to us as a a revelation of of who he is and how he brings about um, knowledge, really, of who he is to us, his creatures. He is the creator God, and he's designed us as his image bearers. We bear the image of God. And we're shown very early in the pages of scripture that God wants to interact with us, He wants to be trusted by us. He wants this to be a very interactive relationship between Creator and creature. And in the two chapters, we've we've, the first two chapters of the book we've covered so far, we see how good everything was that God made. That He gave it to us as His creatures to say, "Take what I have made and be creative with it. Rule over, subdue it, fill it." And follow me and worship me as you live life. He said everything was good in church. It is still good. It's just that we have seen it now through thousands of years of corruption. But what God has made is still good. His design is good. Last week, we looked at the fall. In chapter 3, there's this outside agent, outside of what we see in creation, although the serpent is a created being, enters in to this wonderful place and tempted Eve and Adam, who was there with her. And Eve gave herself over to that temptation and sin entered in to God's good creation. And when that happened, it didn't render God untrustworthy. When sin entered in, it didn't render God untrustworthy. What it did is that it very effectively showed humanity to be frail, and that we are very frail. We, we are full of frailty, but God is trustworthy, and even as Ben preached last week, in that showed how gracious he is. We, didn't, we weren't struck dead at the scene of the crime, so to speak, but God allowed us to continue by his grace. And this is where we pick up today in Genesis chapter four, where Adam and Eve, by God's grace, it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around this, but were exiled from the Garden of Eden. That was a grace given to them by God, were exiled from the Garden of Eden, but then allowed to continue in the roles that God had created them for, allowed them to continue in those roles as husband and wife, in order to have children. And we'll we'll look at that today. That is something wonderful. There's the consequences of sin that's upon them, and they have to make their life outside of the garden in a much more toilsome manner. But God allows them to continue. And we are made very aware of God's graciousness. We're going to see this in particular today as we look at Eve's statements So Eve makes a few statements today in Genesis chapter 4. And we're going to see how trustworthy God is as we reflect upon the statements that Eve makes about God. And God's grace also shines through in the way he deals with Cain as a murderer. There is grace shown to this man who murders his brother. Cain was tempted to sin not from the serpent this time, but from something within, because sin had entered in. He gave himself over to that, and he commits this heinous crime of murdering his brother. Deserving of death, but God's grace is evident upon him. And then from the line of Cain, we see that there's some wonderful creativity that comes from, from the family line of Cain. We see creativity And again, this furthering of ruling over and subduing musical instruments, Um, that was a tambourine I just kicked, Uh, that enter into humanity through the line of Cain. So there's wonderful grace. But throughout the story, it is unmistakable that man continues to follow a path that is contrary to God. And the consequences of taking a path that is contrary to God are predictable. They're very predictable. They're death and destruction. When we turn away from God, we enter into that path that leads to death and destruction. And near the end of the passage that we're going to cover today, we're reminded that not all is lost. Not all is lost. There is still a promise that has been made We covered that last week, a promise that was made that someday there would be an offspring or a seed from the line of the woman who would rise up and crush or bruise the head of the serpent and reverse all the tumult that was brought about by sin entering into God's creation. One day that deliverer will come, and that has continued to be forecasted even at the end of Genesis chapter 4. And I put all this before us as a congregation today as an introduction to this chapter as we're getting into it. And we take time to do introductions, to go slowly through books of the Bible, because if you've ever had this experience, I know it was very much my experience when I was younger as a Christian. I'm like, I need to learn God's word. I need to read this book that I say I believe. And so I'd start in the beginning and I try to work all the way through to the end. Has that been a common experience for anybody? You try to start in the front and just work all the way to the end. And it can be tough, especially if you're young in the faith and you don't really understand, like, what is carrying the story along? What is the overarching theme of this book? So we take time to say, in Genesis, we are looking at that theme. We're looking at creation. We're looking at fall. We're looking at redemption. And this all points to consummation. So that is the overarching theme. And eventually, we know that Jesus is the one that it's all pointing towards. It's very important for us to to realize that and slow down just a little bit as we're reading through these narrative portions of Scripture and see how this story is being developed. And I'm confident, as I stand before you today with a chapter that we're going to be looking at that has a murder of one of the image bearers of God that I can say, we are going to see God at work in the midst of this most heinous sin. Because He is. It's easy for us to lose sight of that when we look at death and destruction. But... That that is our lot when we turn turn away from God is death and destruction. When we turn towards God, we're blessed by his graciousness and by his carrying us along in his plan. When we don't follow God, when we turn away from him, when we go opposite to him, we can expect that we're going to have separation from God, we're going to have separation from others. The separation leaves us vulnerable to continue down the path. And we're going to see this over the next couple chapters, that there's this downward spiral of humanity as people turn away from God. But wherever we find a glimmer of hope in the scriptures, wherever we see something looks like it's about to turn in the right direction, back towards God, towards a better future, one that would free us from the decay that is brought about by death and destruction and sin, that is the way that Christ is preparing for us. Because Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered sin upon the cross. And he offered himself up for us as a propitiation for our sins and for all sins. And many of us here, praise be to God, have put our trust in Jesus, which has allowed us to be a part of his family a family, of the family of God. And yes, this is expanded. We don't find Jesus in the, in the pages of Genesis, and on the third page of our Bibles, but that's, this is the story that we we're reading about, the one that's pointing to the Redeemer who is to come. We see his revelation at work. So what we're going to do as a church, as we move through this passage, is we're going to see that we need to trust God, for he graciously provides and constantly encourages, if only we would see. And in order to chart our course through Genesis chapter 4, I'm going to take it in, in two halves. But I'm not going to split it down the middle, like verses 1 through 13 and then 14 through 26. It's going to be two parallel paths that we're going to watch as we go through here. Okay, We're going to see the continuation of the fall. That's the first portion that we're going to cover, the continuation of the fall. And then the next one is the continuation of God's plan of redemption. And throughout this journey that we take together, we're going to learn how to trust God as he graciously provides and constantly encourages. Our first point, the continuation of the fall, which I would say is cushioned by grace. There's a continuation of the fall, but we're going to see grace abound. As Ben read, we start out this chapter with the birth of children. And although we're looking at the continuation of the fall, we begin here with this grace that's given by God to Adam and Eve. They're given an opportunity to continue in the roles that God has placed on humanity of Of husband and wife, and then as we're going to see today, father and mother. They're allowed to be fruitful and to multiply. And they're allowed to rule over and subdue the earth. So once again, the first two verses. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, or Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man... With the help of the Lord, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. This is the first instance in creation that children arrive on the scene. Just think about that for a moment. the first ever Eve would have experienced the very first pregnancy. We talked about this at the elders' meeting just. You know, the very first one. No, no one to talk to you about, well, what, what, what should I expect? When Nicholas was born down in Arizona, that hospital had almost 50 births a day in that hospital. Here in Hood sometimes we've been there and there's been like two a day. She was the very first one. It's pretty remarkable. It's, again, God giving that gift to this family that they could continue And what was promised to them to be fruitful and multiply. And we know from last week, with new life was going to come pain. We think of the pain of childbirth. And we tend to focus on that physical pain. But right away, when I mention the name of Cain and Abel, that should remind us that there is a whole new, new level of pain that has entered into humanity Because it's widely known that Cain murdered his brother. He murdered his brother. So that was a pain of separation that then all of a sudden just spilled across the landscape of this brand new earth that God had created. Eve would have felt this pain in a way that is indescribable we could we could spend weeks and months probably trying to dive into what does it feel like to be a mother who had two sons and one murdered the other that's a pain that we don't know how to really comprehend but it's a pain that she carried with her for the rest of her life some of our pain in life is like that we can't fully describe it we endure it and it hurts for Eve, one of her sons took the life of another, and he was removed. The one that was remaining, Cain is. He removed himself from the protection of his household, from living nearby, his mother and his father. And he goes off and he goes wandering. And we see from the text that he also turns himself away from the presence of the Lord. This was all pain that would have been felt by the parents. As that just settles in on, on you as parents. I think you can picture and feel the weight of what that pain would be like. Not fully, hopefully, but it's there. And this began because Cain wanted to seize autonomy. He wanted to seize his own autonomy. He wanted to be the one that defined how he interacted with God and with others. The seizing of autonomy is at the very beginning, very uh, start of where we depart from following God. When a person decides that they will not trust God, but will rather trust themselves, they immediately put up a barrier. As soon as they say, I'm not going to trust God, I'm going to just trust myself, this barrier goes up. Even last week, we saw that this doesn't stop God, you know, this barrier that goes up doesn't stop God from being gracious towards us. And it doesn't stop God from being gracious to Cain. It doesn't even stop God from pursuing us. And we're going to see that very much the same today. Remember last week, he called out to the man, where are you? God pursued these sinners. He wanted them to engage with him. And we see this again here. In verse six, it says, Cain is angry and his face has fallen. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? What, Cain, or what God is doing is he is engaging with Cain. He's going to this man who is, who is in a bad place. He's on the verge of sinning, and God is going to him. God is taking time to work with this man who is struggling. And he tells him in verse 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is such a striking parallel to the Genesis 3 account we covered last week. Eve was being talked to by the serpent. But here this week, it's not the serpent, as I mentioned in the introduction. It's internal now. Sin has entered into humanity. And, is, and Cain is being tempted from within. Paul writes about this in Romans 5.12 when he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The Lord is being so gracious to Cain, warning him of sin. And this, hearers of God's word, this is the very first time sin is mentioned in the Bible. God mentions it. He names it. He says this. Is sin sin is crouching at the door sin is a term that we hear often and sometimes it's helpful to define it again it's a missing of the mark there's a mark that has been set that we are to aim for and when we miss the mark that is sin when we miss god's mark and he does that and god uses the term but then he animates it to make it more realistic for Cain to understand what's going on here. He, he, he gives it this, this picture of like a, a predator about ready to pounce upon prey. And he warns Cain, if you open the door, this is what's just outside the door, this thing that's about to get you. You must rule over it. You have an option. You have a choice, Cain. The Lord is being so gracious here. But Cain, he cannot do this. He cannot withhold himself from falling. You might be thinking, well, what could he do? What's something that Cain could muster up to to make sure he's appeasing God correctly? I mean, it looks like from the narrative that Abel had a good and right sacrifice. So maybe he should go to his brother and, and trade some of his... Fruit of the ground for one of those choice animals from the flock, and then bring that to God, and that would do it. But that's that's not what's being conveyed here in the text. And nothing from Scripture should should give us that indication that it's the right sacrifice that we bring to God that appeases God. What we read in Scripture is it's not the item that we bring to God, it's the heart that we bring it to God with. Do we trust God? Or do we trust ourselves? This is something that we find that faces us all the time. Do we trust God? Do we trust ourselves? Oftentimes, when we will not humble ourselves before God, the alternative then is to double down and say, well, I have to trust myself even more. What I am doing must be correct and I'm not going to follow God's way. This is a heart issue that is a hardened heart. We read about that in scripture. It's a seizing of our autonomy and trusting that we can do it on our own. And it boils down to a lack of obedience to God. Samuel rebukes Saul for doing something like this. I'm not going to have time to develop the whole story, but in in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Saul was commanded to get rid of a bunch of spoil and the men kept a bunch of the spoil. And so there's these sheep bleeding and Samuel says, what is the sound I hear? And Saul gives this explanation of, oh, these are for a sacrifice, even though God had said not to do this. And so What Samuel says is, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So if we look at these two brothers, we look at Cain and Abel, we can see that Abel from the text, truly wanted to worship God. He wanted to worship God in spirit and in truth. And somehow Cain was just going through the external motions. He was just carrying out the ritual, bringing an offering before the Lord. So I again ask, well, what could Cain have done differently? What should Cain have done in this case when the Lord says, be careful? He should have confessed. He should have admitted to the Lord that he was angry, that he was jealous, that he he doesn't want to be a tiller of the ground or whatever it was that was causing him to be in this state of, of anguish. He needed to bring that before the Lord because it was putting him on the verge of sin with his anger. It was putting him right there on the verge of sin. Recently, we went through Ephesians where Paul writes, be angry, which happens, it's a passive, be angry and do not sin and active. We are to be active in not sinning in Ephesians 4.26. So it is here with Cain as well. He's given this option and it can be with us. We have a choice. Anger will rush upon us like a wave, but how will we respond to that is a choice. Instead of heeding God's warning, Cain takes the next step. He opens the door, and he finds out what's outside the door. He fails to listen to God. He shows that he doesn't trust God. And this is how seizing of our own autonomy works, And what happens next is he takes these matters into his own hands. Cain, after being confronted by God, and in a gracious manner, he conspires to kill his brother. Cain knows what he's going to do. He knows what he has in mind, and he sets the plan into motion. His plan is to murder Abel. But church, this does not bring about the peace that he has envisioned in his mind. And and sin never does. Sin never delivers on its promises. It never can. It never fully delivers on its promises. In James 1, verse 15, it says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death no one would want death but that's what happens when we go down the path of sin but God so gracious all through the Bible we see God is gracious we see over and over again that God provides this gracious outstretched hand to sinners and so we see that again here in the story Cain murders Abel. He's deserving of death, and God reaches out to him. God extends an invitation to Cain to come and to confess what he's done and to turn from his wicked ways. God inquires of Cain. He seeks this confession. And instead, Cain seeks his autonomy even with a firmer grip, more tenacity. Although he should, he deserves to be struck down for killing his brother because of the blood that he spilled. God chooses to preserve Cain's life. God greatly increases his hardship, but he chooses to preserve his life. So because of the original sin, the, the earth is now cursed, and it's going to be harder for man to, to make a living from the earth. Now we see that God curses Cain. And Cain was a tiller of the earth. He he brought his livelihood up from the earth. And God says, Because of what you've done, now even your job is going to be made harder because you're cursed. The ground's cursed, Cain's cursed, because of sin. And, and God is being gracious, saying, Turn away from this path that you're on. It's a path of destruction. God is also gracious to Cain by putting a mark upon him, a seal. He puts this indication upon Cain that he is not to be damaged. He is not to be, um, vengeance is not to be taken against him. We see this in verse 11. Cain is concerned for his life. I think it's verse 11. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And then the curse comes. And then Cain complains to God in verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear because you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wonder of the earth. That's what God said, that he's going to be a fugitive and a wonder of the earth. And he says, whoever finds me will kill me. He adds this. Whoever finds me is going to kill me. And the Lord says, not so, because if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And then there in verse 15, this mark is put upon him. This mark, put a mark on Cain, lest anyone found him should attack him. And over the years, this mark has taken on all kinds of distortions even leading to the abuse of fellow image bearers. As elders, we discuss this, and we reject any, any distortion of this mark that's put on Cain as a license to bring abuse upon another image bearer. It doesn't, it's not there. That's not what this is for. What we see instead from God's word is this is a grace bestowed upon Cain, a protection upon him that he is going to be preserved. His life is going to be preserved. Yes, in hardship. But all through his life, he's going to be reminded that God is providing protection for him, that he might turn from his wicked ways and once again rejoin and be a part of what God has called him to be, to repent and to turn back. He is deserving of death, but God saves him from that. But even in such a grace, Cain refuses all such opportunities that God gives him. And instead, he, he turns away from the presence of the Lord. He turns away. He's murdered his brother. He's left the place that is near his father and his mother. He's departed from the presence of the Lord. And like I said, he can no longer do what he once did, which was bring forth fruit from the ground, being a tiller of the ground. All this because he killed his brother. He gave in to sin. So where is someone supposed to go who is in a place like Cain is? Where do they turn to? Where do they run to? Really, there's only two options. They can either turn away from their wickedness and turn back to God, or they can double down on their thinking that they're right and continue marching down that path. And as we take a look at Cain's family line, we see that he chooses the la- he chooses the, the former. He goes away from God. But God's grace does not depart. I say this because as we look at the image bearers that come from the line of Cain, we see some wonderful creativity that is given to the earth to the inhabitants of the earth as a gift. There's musicians. We've been blessed today as a congregation by musicians. And we see that in Cain's family line. Workers of metal, bronze and iron, metalwork. That's a great benefit to all of earth. Once again, from the line of Cain. And then the use of rangelands. So if you can take an animal and you can turn a desert or a wilderness into something productive by moving those animals around, that is quite the technology. And so the inhabitants of tents, the dwellers in tents that that watch over livestock, again, a gift upon humanity from the line of Cain. But I think it's rather obvious from the examples given to us in Scripture that we also see this downward spiral in this line that follows in the line of Cain. Cain a downward spiral of moving away from God and away from a meaningful relationship with the Lord. We can just take Lamech, this one character that there's some time spent on in the text, and we can say, well, what's happening with Lamech? What is this highlighting for us from God's word about this path that Cain goes upon? Well, we see that he exalts in the killing of a young man, even a boy. That's what the Hebrew word yelad means. It's a young lad or a boy. Lamech celebrates this. He also celebrates the redefinition of marriage. Earlier on in Genesis, we see it's, it's one man and one woman. That's what God has put together for marriage. That's what we celebrate as a church, as a marriage covenant. One man, one woman for life. Lamech, he redefines marriage. He takes two women. He multiplies wives for the first time in Scripture. He even mocks the provision that God gave Cain. Cain received this mark of protection. Lamech mocks that. After he kills a man, he says, how much more am I able to do what I'm doing? Because I killed because I was wounded. I'm justified. He distorts. This is, this is what's happening. He mocks God. All along, church, there are two paths going on. Two parallel tracks. Right now, we're, we're looking through This one where there's a continuation of the fall, cushioned by grace. But a parallel path that's occurring is the continuation of God's plan of redemption. So I just want to put just a a quick point of comparison between the line of Cain and the line that comes from Seth that we're going to look at here briefly. Is there another Seth in the audience? So if you take the the family lines and you line them up side by side, you have Lamech. So he's this descendant. Uh, We have all these names. And then you take the descendants of Seth and you line them up. And you get to Enoch. I know we we read about Enoch today, but there's another Enoch from the line of Seth. And he's, he's a special character. It says that he walked with God and was not because God took him. So not too many people in Scripture do we read about that walked that closely with God that God just said, you know what? It's time for you to just come on up. You're going to be with me forever. So if you put Enoch, this man who walked with God, his generation, you know whose his neighbor would have been if he would have gone to the next city over? Lamech. Okay, so those are the two family lines. Those are the two tracks that we're following along in this sermon today. We have one that is, that is the fall, and one is the plan of redemption. And you can see it, even in the family lines of how that's being played out, very starkly. And I've walked us through this picture because we can see in that, that track that goes to, to the fall, just how devastating it is, how devastating it is. I'm going to give you the steps that are taken by Cain and his descendants just in a, in a lineup as maybe a help to say like, okay, well, what does this look like in a, in a few, in a list? So it begins with seizing autonomy, beginning by not trusting God. That's the first step, which means the person fails to listen to God. They don't listen to God. That's step number two. And then that leads to taking matters into their own hands. They're going to get a hold of this and they're going to do it on their own. That's step number three. Then they make no effort to return to God. Step four. This brings about a warped view of reality. If you don't turn back to God, you start making things up to fit your own narrative of what's going on. And then we see a redefinition of of good and evil. No longer is what God calls good, good, but it's all mixed up and jumbled. The next step is they want to be anywhere but in the presence of God. Anywhere but in the presence of God because they've gone so far down this path, they don't want to be faced with truth. And God represents truth. And then lastly, they inevitably end up attacking the design of the family. They have to, because God is the one that designed it, so they have to turn against that even. And if you take that list and you track it down, I, have a, I had a hard time even knowing what pronouns to use, because I, I, I use "they," but it could be it could be "me," it could be "you." And we know people that are on this track. And another thing that marks them is how reactionary they are. They're not following along God's plan. They're like dropped into a pinball machine and just kind of bouncing all over the place, not knowing where to be grounded. That's what we see in the life of Cain and his descendants. So when we see someone on that continuum, if we find ourselves on that continuum cry out to God. He's there. All through this, there was this grace that I was trying to show so carefully that God was ready the whole time to say, just turn to me. Just come back, Cain. I'm ready to receive you. Of course, when you're on that path, the consequences of sin mount. Life is very difficult, but it doesn't make God farther away. Now we've got to shift our attention to the continuation of God's plan of redemption. We're going to leave that, that place where there was a continuation of the fall. And we're going to look to the continuation of God's plan of redemption. This is the other picture that we see in Genesis chapter 4. And we cannot miss this. This is, this is the most important part about Genesis chapter 4, So we, we don't miss that God has a plan that He's moving forward for our redemption. And He's revealing more about that plan in the Scripture. So we're going to look specifically back to a section we covered last week, just to show how this is developing. I'm going to read Genesis 3, and you can read along. It's just a page back, maybe, or the same page on your Bibles. Genesis 3, verses 14 through 16. This is the Lord speaking. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So we we cover that once again because... In Genesis chapter 3, as Ben stated last week, we have the Proto-Eogelion. And I'll have to talk to the Latin folks to see if I got that right. But the Proto-Eogelion, which is Latin for the first gospel, the first time we see the gospel jump out at us from the pages of Scripture, when we carefully read it, we see that there. It's the start of God's redemption story. God begins to reveal that there is a hope for a better future Even though sin has come in, there's going to be redemption brought about by one that comes from the offspring or the seed of the woman, and that this one that comes in is going to undo all the corrupt influences of sin. It's going to be dealt with once and for all. This fatal blow is going to be administered to the head of the serpent. Eve is keenly aware of these words. I think you would be too if God spoke to you in the manner that he spoke to Eve. She's keenly aware of what God said to her. And we need to be paying attention to this as well. And we get more direct testimony from Eve now than we do from Adam. So that's something to keep, keep notice of as well. Post-fall, we, we hear more from Eve than we do from Adam. And notice how she speaks of the promise being carried out And she does so, I believe, with great hope. Even in the scripture, her testimony before the story of Cain and Abel, and after Abel's murder, are with an eye for what God is going to be able to do throughout her line, through her children. Because she's trusting God. She's trusting God for his gracious provision, And she's looking for it. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to be trusting God for his gracious provision and looking for it. And that's what Eve is doing. I read earlier, but I'll read again. And jumping back to the beginning of the chapter, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. She's recognizing what a gift this is. God has allowed her to have children. First ever pregnancy. And Adam calls her Eve. Which we looked at this too. Because she was the mother of all the living. And this is the start of that. She's the mother of all the living. And she doesn't presume upon the Lord. She trusts him to do this. And she credits him with giving new life through her. Yes, Adam was involved. But it's right to say, even as Ben did earlier, that children are of a heritage, a gift of the Lord. And Eve, she she bears these sons expectantly, knowing that a better future is to come because God promised it. The better future will come because God promised it. She therefore grieves beyond what we can see from the texts. For not only does she tragically lose Abel, but again, she loses Cain to his wayward way. And we don't see it here, but she's got to be thinking of the promise that was made to her. And now Abel is out of the running. He's killed. Cain seems to be out of the running because he's a murderer and he's turned away from the presence of the Lord. but she still has hope. God is still going to be gracious. God is obviously involved in their life, which is amazing to me if you think about it, that even Cain isn't surprised that God's talking to him. At least we don't get that in the, in the text. So this is a family that wants to follow the Lord and trust that he's got a plan for them. And Eve is not one to give up on the Lord. For after the story of Cain's family line that we took some time to work through, we get to Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. We come back to Adam and Eve, and we say, well, what's going on with Adam and Eve? So we we rush through the history of the line of Cain. Now we come back. And it, it says here that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. I am blessed, I have been as I've been studying this, by these, these statements that, that are made by Eve. She says, God has appointed for me another offspring. Now, there's this, this hopefulness in that statement, this trusting in God that He is carrying, carrying through with His plan for redemption. From the line of the woman is going to be this offspring, this promised one. And that's what we're being drawn to at the end of this chapter is the promise continues. It has not stopped. We see the heinous crime of murder, but that does not defeat God. His plan continues. There is going to be one. Is it going to be Seth? Is it going to be Enosh? Is that going to be the one that crushes the head, that stomps on the snake? We know as students of the Bible that know it's sometime later. But from that line does come Jesus. And this cultivates our trust in the Lord too as we read through and study Genesis that God keeps his promise alive. Such a stark contrast to what we saw with Cain. He has no trust in God. And yet Eve has this immense trust in what God's going to do. Clearly, she's placed her trust in God. I already noted, Enoch comes from the line of Seth, but we also get to Noah, and we're going to study him here in the near future. But he's like a type of savior in a way. He's, he walks with God as well. He's seen as righteous. And then God carries out his plan of redemption, saving a remnant through Noah. Noah. These are all things we're going to see in Genesis and that we are beginning to see. God is faithful. And so here, as we've been looking, we have two possibilities in the text. We have one's the continuation of the fall and the other is the continuation of God's plan of redemption. I'd like to draw this out a little further to where we we know ultimately all of this points. In the earlier pages of Scripture, We don't get it as clearly as in the later pages of Scripture, but this is building up to where we know the ultimate story is going. It's going to Jesus Christ. It's going to Christ. All along the way, we're left thinking well, what did the people of the time think? So we have Enoch, who everyone probably knew like this guy, he's tight with God. Is he the one? is he going to be the one that does what was promised? A few generations later, because Enoch gets taken away, is Noah. Now it seems like the whole world's corrupt, so I don't know if anyone's asking this question anymore, but could Noah be the one? If we were one of Noah's sons and we knew the prophecies, if we knew what was being spoken of, would we have said, is Noah going to do this? Is this it? Is it time to defeat Satan? But that's not how God carries out his plan. It's Continued on. It's continued on. God does not usher in his plan of redemption early in the pages of history. He doesn't usher in his plan of redemption until the fullness of time. We have this inheritance, church, of redemption through Jesus Christ. We, like Eve, put our trust in God. And that his plan is better and far more capable to deal with the hurt and the pain that this world brings upon us than anything we can muster up from within ourselves. And to put this under the banner of Hebrews, where there's this, this contrast between Abel, which we, we hear about as, as righteous blood, and he has a righteous offering in Christ. Hebrews twelve twenty four, the author writes, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the word, better word than the blood of Abel. This is our redeemer. This is the one that has entered in. It's Christ that has done this. All the way through the pages of scripture, we're looking for how is the plan of redemption going to be carried out? And it leads to Christ. This is the testimony of all of Scripture, and it's very clear. Here in the early pages of Scripture, even in Genesis chapter 4, we get the big arrow pointing to say God is faithful, and we can trust Him. Trust God, for He graciously provides. We just need to look to see how He's providing for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, we give You thanks for this day, for Your gracious, gracious way of dealing with us as sinners. Lord, there are many, a multitude of people here today, and the testimonies, I'm sure, range the spectrum. But one thing is for sure is that you have done a work, Lord, to draw us near to you, to reveal yourself through the pages of Scripture, to allow us to celebrate life in Christ together this morning. Lord, may we continue in that celebration as we approach the table, we thank you, Heavenly Father, for allowing Eve to have such a, a, just a solid hope and trust in you. May we develop similarly our faith and our trust in what you're doing. And when we find ourselves going wayward, when we're in that path of sin, Lord, may we not stay there, but to turn to you and to, to call out to you and know that you are ready to receive us. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use it this week in our lives as your followers to help us turn away from sin and to turn towards you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.